0: Welcome to the Trinity Grace Church Tribeca podcast. At Trinity Grace Church, our mission is to help New Yorkers grow in love by practicing the way of Jesus for the good of our city. If you're interested in Trinity Grace Church Tribeca, check out our website at tgctribeca.com where you can learn more about us and learn about ways that you can help support our church and this podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook to see and hear what's going on in our community. Thank you for joining us today and welcome, grace and peace to you.
1: Chapter 13, verse 10 to 17. On the Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by his spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. This is the gospel of our Lord. You can be seated.
0: Before I offer uh, my reflection on this gospel story, I'd like to invite us into a practice of presence, and uh, we do this every week, but um, let's, let's bring our full selves to God and to one another, uh, whatever you bring into the room. And we just invite you to bring your full self. It could be lots of doubt or faith, expectation, or sadness. It could be fear. It could be joy. Um, and the truth is we all bring like a complex range of all of those things with us. But probably for you this morning, something's dialed up. And that thing that's dialed up could be a sort of distracting voice or a preoccupation that keeps you from being present. And... We just invite you to open your heart right now, the best that you know how, in silence and open yourself to God and to one another. So as best as you know how, let's take a moment to be quiet and open our hearts to God. God, we thank you for uh, these moments that we share together as a community and the role that they play in our lives. We don't take it for granted that in the flow of our lives here in New York, moments like these matter. To pay attention to you, to pay attention to uh, the stories that shape our faith, to pay attention to how you're at work right now in our lives, and to seek to discern how you're leading us, guiding us, and prompting us toward healing and wholeness and love and peace in this world. And so give us eyes that maybe we didn't have earlier this week or even yesterday. Give us perception. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is Luke chapter 13, and it's in the Gospel according to Luke. And this this section here is highlighting... A series of burdens that, that bend us over, so to speak. Burdens that bend, that distort, that seem to be too much. And as we try to shoulder them, we find a sort of spine curvature. Our, our, our gaze ceases to go from out there to the horizon where we think about our lives and our futures with a sense of hope, down to the ground where we're preoccupied with uh, a burden or a pain or something that we can't seem to escape from. And Jesus is being shown through this section of Luke's gospel to be addressing these pains, addressing these burdens, setting people free, touching them at, at a deep part of their soul so that they feel a sense of lift. It's Gil Baleo who said that a theme of this portion of Luke's gospel is about quote-unquote sinners, those who are metaphorically bent over, from Satan's afflictions, those who are most typically accused by others, and thus stand bent over under their oppression. And Jesus begins his liberation of sinners with a woman who literally bends over." End quote. There is a sense in which life's burdens can become too much, and uh, we both cease to see the pain around us, and the opportunity around us, and we cease to be seen. And that can be an awful, isolating, uh, sort of mortifying place to be in. The, the text starts with this scene on a Sabbath day, which Sabbath in, in the Jewish tradition was uh, the pinnacle of God's creation. It was the sort of that represented the purpose of humanity. Humanity wasn't created uh, for output. We weren't created for work, so to speak. We were created for enjoyment. And of course, work is a part of that, but work can seem to, to overshadow enjoyment. Work can overshadow wonder. And all the burdens of rules and regulations and rituals can sometimes squeeze out the joy of life. And so Sabbath was a, a Jewish way to reconnect with the, the joy, the marrow of life. And yet, it had become a sort of elaborate system, a system that uh, sucked the joy out of life for many and became a burden. And so Jesus is, is shown here to be restoring sort of that Sabbath vision. And here he is on the Sabbath, and he was teaching in one of the synagogues, and there was a woman, a woman who many did not see, a woman who many did not pay attention to a woman whose pain people had begun to take for granted. As the text tells us, this woman was crippled for 18 years. Uh, And 18 years has uh, some significance in the Bible. Uh, There was an old story in in Judges where uh, 18 years represented the oppression of Israel under uh, a king, uh, a Moabite king. And that Moabite king was pretty brutal, and uh, the people were constantly frustrated under his rule, uh, until uh, a judge rose up and uh, liberated Israel, cried out for liberation, prayed for liberation, and uh, introduced a, an 80-year sort of wave of peace. So that number of 18 would have uh, really stuck in people's minds as representing oppression or tyranny or some kind of burden Um Crazy enough, that story is so Game of Thrones, and it's weird. I, I don't know exactly the, the connection to what Jesus is doing here or why the 18 would be so significant, but, uh, it, I mean, it's, the, the king is portrayed as a very large, obese king, and uh, the judge, like, sneaks into his, his chamber, uh, says, hey, I got some secret news for you. The king's like, everybody get out of here. I want to hear this secret news. Then the, the Israelite judge walks up to him, whispers something in his ear, and stabs him in the belly... And the details of the text are weird because it says the 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 fat from the belly like engorges the the knife. Is this too much? It's the Bible, folks. This is God's holy word. Okay, so chill out. Engorges the 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 blade. Uh, the guy leaves and locks the door uh, to, to leave, and all the servants are left going, Why is the door locked? They assume he's using the restroom. Um, so they wait and they wait and they wait until the text says they're embarrassed. And then they knock on the door finally to no answer, and they break in and realize what happened. And uh, meantime, Israel has, has been able to rally the troops, and they kind of like get their freedom back. So, you know, the kind of stuff Jesus is all about. Um, All right, I really, truly don't know the connection, and I don't know why I I just spent all that time on that particular facet of the story, other than to say it's very fascinating. Um, So here Jesus is, and there's a woman who's been captive to this burden for 18 years. Now, verse 12 says that Jesus saw her. Jesus saw her. And then Jesus called her, and he said to her, Woman, you're set free from this infirmity. And then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up, and she began to praise God. Now, I want us to consider for a moment, when we bring into this room, as we consider this story, the burdens we bring into this room. What pain do you carry with you that shapes who you are? For some of us, it defines who we are. Now, you may be here and you have your pains, but life's going pretty well and you're not, you know, like too worried about your burdens. Um, If that's you, I want you to pay attention to Jesus here. I want you to pay attention to what he's able to see from his place of being upright and feeling like he can see and isn't overwhelmed. And if you're here this morning and you feel burdened, you feel overwhelmed, you feel bent over, so to speak, I want you to pay attention to this woman and her experience and the possibilities that emerge from it. But there's other characters, characters that are indignant. And here it happens to be the religious leaders. The leader of the synagogue uh, watches this healing and is immediately outraged. And he says to himself, uh, well, he says to Jesus, uh, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. Um, And I just said he said that to Jesus. He actually says that to the woman. And I think this is really critical. Um, You see the attitude of the religious leader toward this woman, even in her moment of joy and deliverance and liberation. And it's one that's patronizing, that minimizes, that brushes aside, and that overshadows her joy with this sense of his honor and reputation. He feels probably undercut by Jesus. There's a competition that is supercharged in this moment. And he feels like he's losing face, he's losing control, and he's indignant. There are, there are times in life when uh, we grow accustomed to rituals or order or rules or, or some kind of custom that gives us a sense of order, it gives us a sense of identity. But there's often people who suffer in the shadows of those customs or those norms. And the healing of some, the liberation of some, can feel like the dismantling of things that provide you comfort and order and identity. And that's part of the parable of this story, part of the lesson of this story, is to learn from the folly of this religious leader who was indignant at something beautiful and liberating happening right under their eyes. It seems that everyone here but Jesus is suffering from partial sight. You have the woman who is bent over, and you can imagine 18 years of not being able to look people in the eye or having to steal a glance from the side. And what that would have done to her psyche. In fact, many wonder if it wasn't her psyche that sort of gradually led to this kind of condition. There is a a sort of obstructed view that the religious leader has. He's blinded by his pride. He's blinded by his status. He's blinded by the the self-preservation instinct that that uh, exudes. And it's only Jesus here that's able to see. And so when we think about this story and we consider what it means for our lives, I think there's a, a few really promising phrases here that evoke something. The first here is, at first, you're like, I don't see where the, the fresh connection is, but I think it's quite beautiful, and it's in verse 16. After Jesus rebukes the leader and just says, like, you're a hypocrite. You, know, you give, make so many allowances for work to be done on the Sabbath that profit your economy, but here you can't stand for a woman uh, who is in a place of shame and on the margin of the community to be restored. He's like, it's so hypocritical, and he sort of wipes them off. And then he says in verse 16, then should not this woman a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day. There's two little phrases. First, a woman whom Satan has bound, and two, a daughter of Abraham. These two things, I think, are beautiful as we consider the calling of Jesus, the way of Jesus in a place even like New York. You say, how do you connect Satan to New York in such a powerful way? Satan can often feel like an archaic idea, kind of like the boogeyman. Um, and the way Jesus talks about it here and the way the Bible addresses and talks about Satan is quite profound and sophisticated. The word, the Satan, is a word that literally means accuser. And there is a sense in which we go through life under the burden of accusing voices. They can be the, uh, our own inner monologue and in loop of self-criticism that we can never escape quite. It may be uh, the voices of uh, our parents, uh, phrases or moments that sort of stamp us and mark us, and we live in the residual memory of our entire lives. And at critical moments where we're sensitive or we feel a sense of vulnerability, those voices are turned up once again, and they feel oppressive, they feel like they bend us over. They curve the spine of our soul. There can be other words, words of um, our spouse or our partner, words of um, our family or our inner circle of friends. Whatever the source of criticism is, today we live in an age of social media where uh, trolls galore, right? They, they, they're everywhere. And, uh, and we have to get used to these critical voices coming at us, all the time. And what Jesus notices about this woman is that this spirit of accusation that even the synagogue leader embodies in this woman's life has bound her. It has kept her from freedom. It has kept her from joy. It's kept her from full, joyous participation in her community and among her friendships. It's keeping her from life. And we today live in an era of criticism, of accusation. We live in a, in a, in a, a, a day and an age when uh, we all try to wear thick armor to protect ourselves from that. The workplace here is a very difficult environment um, where harsh critique comes our way in a moment's notice from our superiors or our bosses or our clients. And we have to develop a thick skin to deal with that, but that thick skin wears on us over time, and we can find ourselves losing touch with joy, losing touch with life, losing touch with the thing that makes life beautiful. We become bent over. And this woman, who has been bound by Satan for 18 long years, Jesus sees through that pain. He sees through the burden. He sees through the Perhaps off-putting appearance of this woman that led many to neglect her or ignore her, and he sees something precious at the center. He sees a, a daughter of Abraham, which in his community was a badge of honor. Abraham was the patriarch; he was the good guy you wanted to be affiliated with. He was um, he basically communi- communicated the the holy origins of their um, of their people, and he says. This is the daughter of Abraham. And it makes us, I think it poses this tension, that in our sense of feeling bound or feeling accused or feeling down or feeling overwhelmed and burdened, can we reconnect with that sense of identity that we have a dignity, that we have an honor, that we have a sacredness at the core of our being that has been unrecognized, unacknowledged, unseen, The fan has not flamed that spark, but it's on the verge of being put out. Or if you come in here and you got a really good sense of your own, uh, I don't know, Abraham descendancy, um, do you see it in others? Can you see it in others? When you look around and you think in your life, the people who are unseen and neglected or despised, can you see through the, the surface narratives to the deep structure of their identity in God? That's what Jesus is able to do here. That's the beauty of this. It kicks off a whole series of stories where Jesus is highlighted. And um, a lot of people speculate that Luke's gospel as it was circulating was just devoured by people on the margins. Um, It got most traction in communities where there were high high numbers of slaves, high numbers of women, high numbers of people who were on the outskirts, sinners and tax collectors, which were like a category of people. I think today, like, where this gospel would get traction and circulation. Um, It's the people who feel forgotten. It's the people who feel left out. It's the people who feel left behind. It's the people who feel unseen or unacknowledged, whose cries are not heard. These are the people for whom Jesus brings so much hope. And I think that's that thing. I know in this community, uh, there are people here, you bring in burdens, you're overwhelmed by something, And you need to reconnect with the Jesus who sees you, the God who sees you. And you need people in your life who will channel that into your life, who will open that window to let the ray of God's love touch that core part of your identity that is good and beautiful and sacred and allow it to stand upright. But there are others of you You have kind of a maybe a healthier sense of yourself right now. Maybe you feel loved by God, but you're hoarding it. Or you feel like you have worth, but you're hoarding it. And you're not paying attention. You're not looking and seeing the the oppressed and the burdened and the overwhelmed. And you're not using your sense of power and your sense of worth in generative ways that lift people up. That take their burdens and release them the way Jesus did here. Whatever your vantage point, whether you feel overwhelmed and burdened right now or you feel like you could open the window into someone's soul if you had the eyes to see, this text invites us to receive and experience the love of God in profound ways. There's this, um, one of the early church mystics that we've been looking at, we actually discussed this morning, is uh, one who went under a pseudonym Dionysius. Dionysius. Um, or Dennis for short, which is weird, Um, but are oddly familiar. Uh, And the vision that this figure, who was very important in mystical theology, had of how God's at work in the world was pretty staggering, this idea that the God of love moves toward humanity, moves toward intelligent beings. So I know that some of you are like, not all humanity (laughs) fits into that. But in his language, intelligent beings, which included for him the angels. God's love moves toward humanity, is experienced and shared, and then moves back to God. And this woman uh, experiences love. It's as if a window's been opened into her soul. She stands up, and then she begins to praise God. And this is what uh, Dennis says, The return of created beings to God by love is not an absorption or a plunging into God and a disappearing. The the burdens in the darkness can sort of uh, dissolve our sense of identity. We get lost in it, lost in our burden, lost in our pain, lost in the darkness. We lose a sense of self, and it's like our identity begins to fade away. And I think there's a fear among many when they think of love or the possibility of love that they'll just get lost in love that will overwhelm them as well. And maybe you've experienced people who in the name of love basically absorbed you. They didn't acknowledge your dis- your distinctions and your differentiation and your uniqueness and your goodness and what you add and your difference, but instead it just felt codependent and like leechy. But here this church father says, it's not an absorption or a plunging into God and a disappearing, but rather it's a flowering, it's a perfection, it's a divinization. Created beings reach their full potential in their return to God. The generosity of creatures toward one another helps them all return ecstatically to the one. And I want you to think of where you are in that that great chain of God's love moving throughout the world, healing and touching and restoring. Perhaps this morning you need it. You need that window opened. You need people in your life who will see you, who will call you, who will touch you, and who will be facilitators of that. And others of you, you need to give the love. You need to share the love. This week you need to be on lookout for people who you can see and you can call and you can touch with consent. But the acknowledge... They acknowledge the the, the goodness and the beauty of this person. They're a child of God. In the Hebrew parlance, they're a a child of Abraham. In order that we would return ecstatically to the one. There's an old story about J.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings. And he was a part of um, a community of writers called the Inklings. And that included C.S. Lewis, it included uh, Charles Williams and others. They would gather, they'd, they'd share little bits of their stories and give each other feedback. But it was kind of a community of writers. They connected and they had a rich, rich, rich friendship. And as they met and they would smoke and drink and talk, um, it, it was it was a rich source of, of joy for their life. And Charles Williams died at one point. And... Uh, when Charles died, uh, J.R. Tolkien is said to have, uh, is known to have said that a part of him died. And he told his friends, like, it was, when Charles died, uh, not only a part of me died, but a part of um, Jack, which is what they called C.S. Lewis, and others died as well. Because what Charles Williams brought out in Tolkien and what Charles Williams brought out in C.S. Lewis was unique. It was what only he could bring out. And they all enjoyed what Charles brought out. And I think of my life, how certain people in my life bring out certain qualities. They they tease out or draw out certain attributes. They call it out. And when you think of your life as having that kind of potential, that kind of holy potential, where you and only you can draw out or tease out or call out or, or name or identify or encourage pieces of someone that no one else can, then you start to see yourself as a part of this grand, beautiful project to blossom and nourish and grow people into their full potential. You become a vessel or an agent of the love of God, awakening and enlivening those around you. And this is why Jesus was such a force. He was a force for peace. He was a force for justice. He was a force for inclusion. And his love was so transgressive because it violated all the the sensibilities, religious and political, that basically made us feel comfortable with us and them, in and out, up and down, and created an apathy, a survival of the fittest. But the love of God, always looking for that lost coin, always looking for that lost sheep, always looking for the outsider, always looking for the person who's bent over and overwhelmed in order to tease out and draw out the identity of God's love that's deep in them. And so this morning as we come to this table, I wonder how God would use this story to prompt your imagination to holy action. I wonder if maybe some of you here just need to open your heart to God's love afresh. You need to open your heart to people in your life who are trying to see you, trying to love you, trying to call out the good in you that maybe you're afraid of or worried of or you feel, think you're going to get lost or absorbed in it. And maybe you just need to open your heart to that love to receive it. Some of you here today, not only do you need to reconnect with love, but you need to think and imagine and put energy toward whom you can, you can find to love, who you can share that love with. This is no small thing. This is life-altering stuff. There was a, a really small gesture in my life. This is the most trivial of things, but um, but the, the way it impacted me and the way it made me feel seen just completely, uh, I feel like it, it changed my year. I, I was early in my career, uh, shifted from one ministry to another. And and the first era of that ministry, I was with my friends. They were like my best friends. And we had so much fun together. We, were, we did youth ministry. And then I was asked to do young adult ministry. And uh, all of a sudden, I got put in the opposite side. It was a megachurch, like this office at the far corner of the building with like all the boring adult ministers. And uh, I didn't know many of them. I was way younger than all of them. And I was excited about this new role, but I was kind of depressed about my new social situation. And um, I went to dinner one time, and uh, my friends were all there, and uh, and their spouses, and we were just like hanging out, and all of a sudden, one by one, they start taking their jackets off, and they all have uh, shirts, T-shirts, printed with a-, a picture of me and my new colleagues all around me, and it was like they knew that I felt like unseen or out of place, and that that was a source of pain. And they all just, it was as if they were just saying, We see you. It is terrible, but we see you. <laughs> and they're bearing witness to that and seeing me. And just, I, I, I did. I felt like a lifting, you know? It was like a relativizing of the pain I was facing in the moment, just because I was known and seen in it. And there's something about the power of just seeing, acknowledging, and sharing that love that helps people reconnect with. Their dignity infuses people with hope. And there are a thousand ways that you can be a force for this in our world. So when we come to this table, let's pray and let's ask God to fill our imagination, fill our mind with the possibilities for this week. The people that we can uh, name and acknowledge and call out something beautiful and something good and have a healing presence in the world. Amen.